Digital marketing seems to be the mystery that most entrepreneurs struggle with, and real estate investors are no exception. The truth is, there are multiple avenues to success. Those experiences will be best shared by the guests on this podcast. My name is Jason Wright, and I would like to welcome you to Real Estate Investor Marketing Stories. What is going on, Jason, right here with another awesome episode of the podcast. We are up to 13 already. Can you believe it? I certainly can. Having a hell of a good time doing it. Been a good experience. Been a good experience for me. A good experience for the guests. I think we are growing an audience that is entertained, educated, and inspired as well. An audience is you, and I think you are active and passive investors, so fun stuff. So I have an interesting thought last week, kind of a realization about our business. And I thought, you know what? There's a lot of people doing this. They don't even realize they're doing it, but I wanted to share it with you. And it's really about, you know, I'm always trying to find ways to, to simplify how I talk about marketing so that more people can go, oh, that makes sense. I can do that, right? So the thought I had recently was, man, things are going really, really well for us lately. Why is that? What's changed? So just to give you some context in a general sense, uh, January of this year, best year we've ever seen in our company. March of this year, two months later, we're damn near doubling January. And I don't even know how that's possible, but it's happening. And it's not even in over the course of a month. It's like in a two and a half to three week period within this month, which is really wild. And okay, we're just coming from what's happening. One thing I noticed was we are doing a better job of marketing without silos. And what I mean is a mistake people fall into often. You're trying to get new passive investors into your audience. You're trying to get new people into your world. They look at these different parts of their marketing as silos. You have your email list over here. You have your LinkedIn following over there. You have your podcast audience somewhere else, et cetera, et cetera. What you need to be doing and what I'm going to do to you right now is encourage you to get involved everywhere. If you're listening to this podcast, go to our Facebook group. It's, uh, it's very narrow, very applicable to what we do. It's about simplifying your active campaign sales funnels, and it's specifically for active capital raisers. So if that defines you, go there. There's awesome content we'll issue there. If you go to reimarketingstories.com, not only can you stay up with all things related to the podcast, but you can get onto our email list where we share relevant stuff about marketing for active investors. So once you start to get your audience in more than one place, everything that you do becomes nurturing. Everything that you do becomes education. And it's really, really, really powerful. And, you know, this week, especially last week, seeing all these sales come in for us and looking at the names going, hey, I saw this person in the Facebook group. They're in the email list over here. They're over there. And I started to see... The pattern, and the pattern is they're not in one place in our world. They're in all of these different areas because I think we do a pretty good job of intentionally cross-pollinating our, our, our marketing efforts to get people in a bunch of different places. Does that make sense? So anyway, hopefully you can go light bulb. I could be doing that as well. I've got this big LinkedIn audience. Are they on my list? Is my list on my LinkedIn? You know what I mean? So you want to get people in more than one place. And then all of your efforts serve as marketing, serve as nurturing your marketing, right? You don't just have to nurture from the email list and you shouldn't be. Anyway, 
It was a little bit longer than I anticipated, but as you you saw, as you heard, I got passionate about that, and I think it's important. And somebody listening is going to go, damn it, that's exactly what I need to hear. Let's go. All right. So today I'm talking to a, a good friend and a really good guest, Rob Beardsley. Rob is the founder of Lone Star Capital. He is in the, the Manhattan area of New York City. He is a successful author of several books in the industry, and I've got, I believe, both of them in my office somewhere. My, my wife actually rearranged this thing for me, so my books are moved and out of sight right now. Anyway, Rob is a, uh, a great speaker. I've seen him speak several times. I've had the privilege of sharing a stage with him once or twice as well. Good dude, good speaker. And he's acquired over $300 million of multifamily, not surprising, in the Lone Star State. So... Uh, you've heard my introduction to Rob. Let's check out our conversation. I think you'll find it to be great. And I'll encourage you, if you're just listening to this, check out the video of it as well on our YouTube channel. Good stuff. Let's check it out. What is going on, Rob? Welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's nice to be recording on President's Day. <laughs> Absolutely. So I don't know this story about you. Uh, I'd love to hear kind of how you got started down this road of real estate investing. Sure. So... I grew up in a real estate family. My parents ran a residential brokerage firm from home, so I was exposed to the single-family residential world. My parents uh, bought and sold luxury homes for their clients, and they did some fix and flips and construction on the side as well. I wasn't in particularly interested in what they were up to, but I certainly absorbed some of it. It wasn't until I went to college and was kind of just doing my own exploration where I uh, stumbled upon multifamily and I found it to be just a much more institutional, scalable business that resonated with me and my more long-term wealth building philosophies. So got into multifamily, kind of dragged my parents into it as well. I said, hey, this is what we should be doing. I convinced them to start making some multifamily investments. And my original vision was to start a business with my dad. That was the dream. Uh, but he was too busy with his brokerage firm I was able to kind of talk to some of his clients and, and raise capital from them. But he, like I said, he was just too busy to really go all in with me. So fortunately, I met my business partner, Kent, and we started Lone Star Capital together. And that's been a, a fantastic partnership. And we've grown a great team. And over the last five years since starting the business, we've acquired over $350 million in, in multifamily deals in Texas. And we've got like $130 million under contract right now. So we're growing like crazy. Awesome, man. I love it. When you were in college, I'm curious about this, did you ever have a moment where you thought, do I want to work for somebody or do I want to work for myself? Or are you always clear on working for yourself? That's a really good question. I had a vision and a desire to work for a consulting firm. I wasn't opposed to working at a big company. Yeah. So it's not like I was necessarily had to work for myself. But with that being said, I was always very entrepreneurial minded. So I don't know how long it would have lasted or what my what my true vision was. But uh, yeah, I was kind of thinking I would go into consulting or maybe join a startup and be part of a small team because I was studying computer science. So I was going to do something in the technology space. But yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting thought. It's funny. And I love hearing uh, how you were brought up because like I grew up in a home, there's a lawyer in the home and a court reporter. And the only thing they knew was go to school, get a job. So I remember fishing was my obsession as a kid and was about 14. My mom reached this point. She's like, I'm not buying you any more stuff. Like you've got more fishing tackle than any adult we know. And I was like, well, there's more I want to get. She's like, well, I guess you better start making money. 
So I started a landscaping company and I was making 75 bucks a week just in my cul-de-sac. And it was all cash, tax-free, and I would drive up to our sporting goods store and buy more tackle. And I never forgot that taste. And when I got out of high school, the first job I got out of high school was changing oil down the street for six bucks an hour. And I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this at all. I don't want to be here. The money sucks. So I went back into landscaping, built up a business for seven years. And it was so funny because my parents kept saying, enjoy it while it lasts, but you're still going to have to go to school. And I was like, do I? So I went to school and I went into corporate America for seven years and I was this is never going to work for me. I knew it. I was like, the creative freedom's gone. The happiness is gone. I got to go. But it's so neat to hear how you describe your childhood because that's what I'm trying to create for my kids. Like, hey, you have options and it can be either path, but there is two paths, not one. So sorry for the tangent, but it, it, it riled up some good stuff in me. So I thought I'd share. All right. So I know you like Dallas. And I know you like multifamily. Are there any other markets or asset classes you've got your eye on? If so, what are they and why? Yeah, our focus right now is Dallas and Houston. We like sticking to those markets and, and staying focused because we feel like it gives us a competitive advantage rather than being kind of a no-name and non-expert in another market, right? Yeah. So that's really important to us. With that being said, it is interesting to kind of battle between the concepts of focus and diversification yep. because we have investors who love us, but they say, you know what? I've already over allocated to Texas. Yep. If you have something outside of Texas, would love to work with you. Right. And we're not going to just go out there and do a random deal in another state just, just for them. But that is something that, you know, makes you think, Hmm, well, could we raise more money? Could we grow a bigger business? Could we grow faster if we were in more places? And I would, for now, mostly argue no. I think the focus and the expertise and the reputation you can develop in one market by being focused will allow you to scale faster. It's kind of this fallacy of when I started, I had this fallacy in my head that if I look at more deals in more markets, the more deals I'm going to do. The more deals I look at, the more deals I do. Pretty straightforward, right? But that's actually not true to the extent you're looking in many markets. I was looking everywhere trying to get a deal. The reality is if you become a market expert, and really look to build relationships, you're going to get better deal flow and you're going to be able to be more of an expert on that deal flow. So, so for us, staying focused, I think is the right way to go. And that's, and that's being in Dallas and Houston. And right now we're focusing on multifamily acquisitions. Something new for us down the road that I'd like to launch would be a development initiative where we buy land and title it and build it. So we do everything from the ground up and then the unique angle for us there will be holding the property after we stabilize it. A lot of developers build and sell, build and sell, and that's great. You can make a lot of money that way, but we'd actually like to build long-term assets, long-term wealth, and focus on building and then holding long-term. And when you do that, you remove a lot of the risk associated with development because development is very much so a timing game where you're hoping that you build and deliver into a strong market. Whereas if you have a, let's say, 10-year hold projection, it's less consequential whether you deliver into a strong market or into a weaker market. Yeah, it makes sense. I like that. What's funny about what you're saying is like, oh, I'll parallel that into my world, which is, as you know, is digital marketing. When I started, it was like, hey, if you'll pay me and you want something done, I'll find out how to do it and I'll do it. And that's how a lot of people get started. But I have found the same thing. The more narrow I go with the niche, the more you can just crush one thing and you know, on a really high level. 
you know, from my experience, it is a way to build a more profitable, more expert focused company. So it's interesting just thinking about the way I would have thought about what you said five years ago versus now. It's just, it's crazy how it changes, but I agree. And I love niches as well. Uh, what would you say have been the simple marketing strategies and tactics that let you and your company initially get traction, getting new investors into your business? I think the critical piece that everyone needs if they want to build a robust infrastructure for attracting investors is a newsletter. So very, very early on, I started a monthly newsletter and it wasn't super fluffy and I mean, everyone has their own take, but I took the take of writing a thoughtful article once a month and then including some company updates and maybe some other updates, right? Yep. And those articles resonated with a lot of people and it, it, it built a little bit of a, of a following and attraction. So the monthly newsletter for us is, is very important. But, and, and the reason why is number one, you need to have some way to collect people and collect email addresses. And number two, you need to make sure they don't forget about you. Yep. You have a good interaction, you meet someone at a conference, but then you never follow up, you never talk to them again. It's wasted effort, and I, I hate waste. So if you meet someone and then they follow your newsletters, they may not be relevant or an actionable potential client or investor for six months, a year, or years, but if they keep getting your newsletter, you never know what's going to come of it, where they might eventually raise their hand and want to work with you, or they know somebody who's, let's say, selling a property and has a million dollars to invest, right? So the newsletter was something that we did very, very early on before I even really dove all in into marketing. It definitely paid off. Yeah, I like that. I, I think it, it is a great thing. It, it amazes me how many people in this game, whether they're new or they're more experienced, I talk to them every week, who refuse to do that. And I always say to them, like, you get something in your list, if you don't have a deal for nine months, what do you talk about? And they always say the same thing. We don't talk to them at all. Like you said, it's a waste. You're building a dead list. How's it ever going to be helpful? Because I know when I get deals that hit my inbox every week from companies I've never heard of, you know, in markets that maybe I'm like, I don't know what who these people are, what they're doing. I'm not interested. I'm why are you in my inbox? You know, but it's like, if people just make that effort, it's kind of enjoyable to do. I enjoy doing ours. And it allows you to, to get things happen when you write them down, right? It allows you to get some stuff out. But when people say, I don't have time, I'm like, it doesn't take that much time. We can't do once a month, you know? So it shouldn't be surprising. It probably isn't to you as well that some people just cannot get traction, but that there's no effort on the basics of marketing, you know? Right. And like you said, it doesn't take that much time. It's kind of just a mental block. Yep. Absolutely. So many things are. So I'm going to throw you a bit of a curveball, Ming. So I know you love curveballs. Who would you say the biggest mistake or maybe the biggest regret you've had in regards to marketing has been so far? So the biggest regret I would say is not doing more in-person stuff. Yeah. That is something that we're has become a recent initiative. Yeah. And I'm really thankful that we're we're pushing on that. Yeah. But I just was previously lazy and I'm sitting here in New York and we have so many relationships here. We, there's so many big investors here. Yep. And I was just previously content making email intros and talking deals over the phone. And it's like, well, why didn't we just meet in person? Because then I would be a real person to them and they would take me and my information, my deals more seriously. So that's a big regret. 
And yep. uh, that's something that we are working to fix where everywhere I go, not everywhere, but we're trying to host investor dinners around the country based on my travel schedule and just taking advantage of where we are here in New York and, and wherever I happen to be throughout the country. Yeah, I think it's great. There's no, there's no replacement for in-person, you know. Zooms are great, like if you can't be in person, and it still blows my mind how people will hide behind the camera. No, every time you can be on video or be on the stage, do it, because like you say, the power of it's unbelievable. Me being a flaming, massive extrovert, I love the in-person stuff, man. My wife, she's 50% business partner, pretty silent, not to me, but silent to the world, but she has become obsessed with, these are the events with our target audience, you're going. I've got three people on the team trying to find who to talk to and speaking. And it's like, holy smokes. But you sit down, you have a cigar with somebody, you break bread with somebody, that connection's real and that can be powerful. Like you say, maybe it's not them. Maybe it's somebody they know or network they're in. So I think it's real smart, man. I think it's really good stuff. Can you share a story about your journey that maybe you haven't shared in another podcast or share publicly that you think about sometimes? I just go, hmm. So it could be something funny, something silly, whatever you want to, but just looking for something authentic, raw, and maybe something you haven't shared before. Sure. I actually shared this over a, an investor dinner a couple of weeks ago, which I hadn't, I realized when I told the story, it's a good story, but I don't really share it with everybody. Yeah. So like I said, in the intro, I brought, kind of dragged my parents into multifamily saying, Hey, you know, you guys are working really hard in, in your residential business, but you're not really building any assets. What are you doing? And my parents' really single asset was their primary residence, my childhood home. And they had, you know, basically the the single family home has been one of the biggest wealth creators uh, in American history, right, for, for many Americans. So my parents kind of took that same strategy and basically bought the biggest, most expensive house they could and banked on the appreciation and then every month to make that mortgage, they would do whatever it took to make that mortgage payment, right? It's a forced savings account. My dad would always say forced savings account. Yep. So over 20 years, my parents built up a lot of equity in their home, but it was just sitting there doing nothing. And what was the plan? What was the exit plan? I didn't know. They didn't really know. So when I got into multifamily and I realized, well, look at this, your equity is kind of essentially dead in your single family home. You could sell that house and roll the equity into a multifamily property, it'll produce cash flow. You could live off that cash flow. Yeah. So so I started telling these theories to my parents and my dad was somewhat receptive. My mom, I mean, it made her cry actually because she had an emotional attachment to our childhood home and the neighborhood, right? She had identified, hey, this is where I live. I live in this nice neighborhood. I live in this big house. And that was her identity. So the thought that she would have to, let's say, move out of that neighborhood and God forbid rent, let's say, that was a major, major shock. So it was met with a lot of resistance. And then over time, you know, speed through all the trials and tribulations. That's exactly what my parents did. They sold the house and they bought 300 units in Texas. They moved to Texas to the property. And they handled crazy renovations and they put in so much work, they completely turned it around and they tripled their equity in wow. the deal. Wow. Because, I mean, we found them a great deal. They managed the deal tremendously well. My dad has a construction background, so they're doing the renovations, doing amazing work, doing it for super cheap. And it completely transformed their lives. 
completely transform their lives. And they put in all this work over 20 years to get to that point and then to actually pull off the business plan at the property. And uh, they they exited the, the residential business. This is the only thing they do now. And they travel the world living off the cash flow. And my mom, the best part about it, instead of crying, she loves it. She's super passionate about management. She thinks she's the best manager in the world. She loves how she has a big team at the property managers, the maintenance team, the leasing agents. It's given her a completely different purpose. And for my dad, it's given him what he's wanted for a long time, which is retirement, because he always complains that he's been working super hard doing dishes since he was 14. And yes, he gets kind of his retirement. And then my mom gets kind of her second passion or new career. That is incredible, man. And to think that you helped kind of put that in motion. Like as a parent myself, it almost makes me emotional hearing that. That's freaking awesome. So my kids are 17 and 12, not quite there yet, but it's really, really cool to give back like that, man. That's awesome. Thank you. All right. If you had the opportunity to talk to a new capital raiser getting into the game, and I know this happens to you probably on a weekly or daily basis, what's a one piece of advice, marketing advice you'd give them getting started? Yeah, well, I wasn't going to give marketing advice, but I'll, 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 give, I'll give marketing advice and I'll give other advice as well. Perfect. So the first advice that jumps to my mind is, and this goes to anything you do, but do what you say you're going to do under promise and over deliver. This is a big problem in the capital raising space because simply people underestimate how difficult it is to raise money. You think about it and you get all excited and you see a good deal and you think, well, this is a no brainer deal. Everyone in my network should invest. The reality is getting people to part with their money is extremely difficult and people are spoiled for options. So that's the reality of the game. People come into it and they they come to us all, like you said, on a daily, weekly basis. And they say, oh, I can raise a million dollars for you guys. No problem for your upcoming deal. And they can come up a lot short of that. So that puts pressure on on us as a firm because then we have to go and backfill. It can cause delays. It, it's just unneeded stress. So on our end, that has forced us to be more selective and relationship focused with, with who we partner as a capital raiser, you want to really make sure that you don't overpromise, underdeliver, and ruin a relationship with a potential partner they want to work with. And the reality of being a capital raiser is you don't want to, if you are going the partnership route with sponsors, is you don't want to have too many partners. It's going to make your life more complicated. So what you want to do is you want to build the right relationship with a, a handful, whatever that means to you and your business and then scale it from there. So commit to a lower amount. If you think you could do a million, only say, hey, I think I can do 500,000 and then hit it 500,000 on the dot, right? And then say, hey, I, I hit this and I'm hungry for more. So that's my pep talk on the, the capital raise side. On the marketing side, it's a lot of the same stuff that we're doing, like the newsletter. Video content has been really big for me. And that's kind of what maybe put me on the map. I would make videos all the time and especially while traveling. I really wish I still did this, but I'm just lazy. But I, w- I have a crazy st- travel schedule. And so what I would do is I would record video everywhere I'm at. Hey, I'm in Phoenix. Hey, I'm in Paris. Hey, I'm in Amsterdam. I'm in Miami. I'm in New York. And people would love me being in different scenes and just talking multifamily and getting into the nitty gritty on stuff. And it developed a, a good reputation. And like we talked about, video, people get to know you better than any other medium. Yeah. However, what really accelerated our our reach and growth was when we coupled the video content with text, in particular on LinkedIn, because while people can learn to love you and get to know you through video, 
LinkedIn algorithm doesn't promote videos as virally as it does text posts. So once we started sprinkling in more text posts, then our reach grew. We were getting 10, 20,000 views on a text post. People would get to know us, maybe start to follow, and then they would see the videos, and then they would get to know us better. So mixing up the different kinds of content is it's a bit more of an advanced strategy, but it's really, really valuable. And the reason why I say it's advanced is because if, if, we're, if someone listening right now hasn't made a single piece of content, they start to hear this and they think, oh my gosh, I have to make videos and then texts and articles and a newsletter, right? They get overwhelmed. So that's why I'm sure you recommend this as well. Start with one thing and nail it. And then you can start layering things on. Yep. It's great advice. And man, that's, that's really good engagement for LinkedIn, what you're talking about. But I, I will agree with you. LinkedIn's organic reach is so much more friendly, I think, than like Facebook as an example with text. When I go to an event, Posted a picture with you and I one time, just I think in Miami, just a simple post that's like actually you somewhere, and it really can go a long way, which is cool to watch. You don't really see that as much with Facebook. So, you know, the different platforms have their strengths and weaknesses. I think anybody who's trying to raise capital with Norse LinkedIn is making a big mistake. I think uh, all passive investors are there in some form, so or potential passive investors. So, I think it's good stuff. But yeah, I mean, marketing fundamentals start with one thing, just like playing a sport, right? Learn to dribble, learn to pass, learn to shoot. I'm thinking of basketball. So good stuff, man. All right. So we're recording this February 2023. As you look forward through the end of 2023, where are you focused on most of your business this year? What are you thinking about? So the, the headline goal for us this year is to do $350 million in acquisition volume. All right. And that would effectively double the portfolio. Yep. I think we're well positioned to do that. We've been growing slowly and, and it may, might on the outside look fast, but on the inside, it feels like it's been a grind. And I feel like we've been growing slower than what we're capable of sure. uh, based on everything we're doing. So that, that to me is a, it's ambitious goal, but it's, it's doable. Yep. And as I mentioned before, we have 130 million of deals under contract right now. So we're kind of need to trend around a hundred million a quarter. So yep. that's, and so what's re really interesting, if I can just go on a quick tangent sure. is when we were growing, or doing less and, and still younger, there was no real time pressure because we would only do two, three deals in a year, and that's not very difficult to, to do over the course of a year. And now what I'm finding is there's this X factor, which is speed in terms of hitting our goals. Because the sooner you can find a deal, put it under contract, go through due diligence, raise the money, and close, then the sooner you can start doing the next one. Yep. And we're bumping into that time constraint over the course of 12 months. You've got 12 months. You can't take four months out of the year to close one deal and then get to the next one, right? If you want to do 10 deals, it needs to be rapid fire. So I'm talking to my team and saying, hey, we need to really start flexing the speed muscle and trying to get deals closed quicker. So that's not easy to do, uh, but that's one of my soft goals for this year as well. Because if you want to hit the 350, speed has to be a factor. I like it. Very ambitious. And I'm curious with you, when you look at that 350, is your mind wired to kind of the monthly pace or is it the quarterly pace or how do you look at that? I kind of, I, I think quarterly. There's different ways to look at it. We can, we can break it down and say, okay, well, 350, what's the average deal size, right? So if I, if it's 350, let's say the average deal size, it's gotten smaller lately just because of, of where debt has been. Yeah. Let's say the average deal size is 35 million. That's 10 deals. Yep. So if we have 10 deals to do over the course of the year, 
that means you should be going under contract every month or so, right? So that's one way to look at it is, hey, are we putting a new deal under contract every month or so? But the reality is deals are kind of more long ranging. So you could look at on a quarterly basis because you never know, you might put a hundred million dollar portfolio under contract and that is a nice chunk for the quarter. So I'm thinking about it more so like a quarterly, quarterly game. Yep. I I asked that question because a buddy of mine and I both digital entrepreneurs and service-based business, we talk about this sometimes and I, I tend to focus on my goals and then I break it down. What's my monthly pace need to be? And I understand that within a quarter you can have highs and lows, but he's obsessed with the quarterly. And I was like, at the end of the day, it's the same game. It's just however your mind works. I was just really curious. So very cool, man. So anybody watching or listening, if they want to get more info from you or your team to learn about what you're doing, what's the best way they can do so? To learn more about Lone Star Capital and what we have going on, head to our website, lscre.com. On our website, we have a new investor form if you want to get in touch with us and uh, learn more about investing with us or partnering with us on a future deal. If you want to get a hold of some of the resources that we've created, such as our monthly newsletter, you can sign up there as well. We also give away our underwriting model for free for those that are looking to have an underwriting tool or build one themselves. And then finally, you can also find my two books that I've published on our website as well. Awesome, man. Well, been a great show. I really appreciate your time and attention and thanks for coming on. Yeah, likewise, it was great. Thank you for listening to this episode of the show. I had a great time making it and I hope you really enjoyed yourself listening to it. If you want to keep up with all things Real Estate Investor Marketing Stories podcast related, I encourage you strongly to go to reimarketingstories.com and signing up for our podcast newsletter. We will simply keep you up to date with what's going on at the show, new episodes, and things like that. reimarketingstories.com. So hopefully today's episode and the other episodes that you'll listen to will remind you that as a real estate investor, everybody starts at the beginning, okay? Um, Our guest today and the other guests that you will hear on this show will share their real story, right? They'll tell you what worked, what didn't work, And I want you to remember one thing, if you remember nothing else today, it's possible for you to, okay? Never stop going and keep following your passion. Finally, today's show has been brought to you by CapitalRaisingAutomations.com. If you're an active capital raiser and you're ready to learn the three areas that are holding you back from raising more capital, I strongly suggest you check out CapitalRaisingAutomations.com check out our free 10-minute video there, and you let me know if it doesn't provide you value. I'm sure it will. All right. Thanks again for listening to the show this week. Hope to see you next time. Take care.